Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. Got something a little bit different for you today. We've just finished here the men's discipleship breakfast here at All Saints. It's Saturday morning, March the 25th. We just finished a great hour and a half of food and fellowship, and then I gave a talk, and we had some uh, time for discussion, or too little time for discussion, actually. But this is kicking off a series of sessions we're going to have this year on the subject of work. And the title of the first one which we just finished, was Loving Your Work. And I want to just give you a quick introduction to this, and then we're going to cut from the video to the, just the audio for those who, of you who are watching on YouTube. It won't make any difference, really, to those of you who are listening on the podcast. Uh, I want to introduce where we're going with this. I began the talk by reading a quotation from Steve Jobs' famous Stanford University commencement address in 2005, where he explained his view about how we are to go about loving what it is that we do for work. Here's what he said. I'm convinced that the only thing that kept me going, he's speaking of his time as a, in the early days of Apple, was that I loved what I did. You've got to find what you love. Your work is going to fill a large part of your life and the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work and the only way to do great work is to love what you do. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking and don't settle. As with all matters of the heart, you'll know it when you find it. And like any great relationship, it just gets better and better as the years roll on. So keep looking, don't settle. Now, what's interesting about this is the way round that Steve Jobs puts things. Steve Jobs here is articulating what has come over the years to be known as the passion hypothesis, which goes roughly like this. In order to find work, in order to love the work that you do, you need to first figure out what it is that you love, figure out what your passion is, and then follow your passion. Find work that fits with what you're passionate about. You notice the way around it goes. It's what's my passion? What do I love? First. Then second, I need to make my work fit that. And I want to suggest that gets entirely backwards. It is possible to find work that you love. It is possible to love what we do, even in a fallen world. But at the same time, the way to do it is not by doing what Steve Jobs said. I want to suggest that actually it's the other way around. There's a certain way of working in the world as a believer in union with Christ. And it's the way that we go about our work that will cause us to love it or not to love it. So you will find people who are passionate about their work and love it, but it's not generally because they have antecedently identified their passion and then followed it. It's the other way around. So, well, there's a lot more to talk about in relation to that. And I'm going to leave you to listen to the rest of the Men's Discipleship Breakfast. We had a short uh, discussion time afterwards and many of the questions that we didn't get to and some of the ones that we did, we're going to pick up in future sessions. So watch this space and I'll put out on the podcast with the help of the tech team here at All Saints, all of the other uh, sessions in the next few months as we follow this theme, which is going to occupy us for much of the year here in the Men's Discipleship Breakfasts and in other contexts as well. The theme of our work and this first session, loving your work. Enjoy it. God bless you and bye for now. Um, all right, um, I'm going to lead us in prayer and then we're going to just jump in and get started. You've all got one of these handouts that says loving your work. Yeah, okay, good. Let's pray and then we'll jump on in. Merciful and gracious Father, we're thankful to you for your presence here among us by your spirit, for our fellowship in Christ, uh, for the church of which we're a part, for the food we've enjoyed, and for your word, the Bible, by which you speak and lead and guide us. Please would that be our experience now in these next few minutes. As we reflect on the teaching of your word concerning 
that which we spend a very significant portion of our lives doing, our daily work, our vocations. We want to love that which you've given us, and you've given us work to do. So please teach us, we pray, to love what we do. And may this next few minutes and our discussion together conduce to that end. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. My aim, as I indicated, is to talk for, I hope, about half an hour. I can't be sure. Yeah, go ahead. Two more handouts. The gentleman over here uh, should be able to help me. I think I printed enough. So, oh, my apologies. They're right here. Go ahead. Sorry, Sam. Thank you. <laughs> you were completely right. I was completely wrong. Uh, my aim in the time we've got, I'm going to talk hopefully about half an hour, then we'll have some time for Q&A and discussion. My aim is to help you all to love your work. That is to say, your job, what you do for money, uh, your studies and your preparation for work, if you're younger and still in training and studying, everything you do that constitutes your vocation. My aim is to help you to love it. And on the face of it, you'd think that would be possible. Ought we not to love everything that the living God has given us? What He gives us something. And we are to despise it. I hardly think that. That shouldn't be the place we start from. We ought to be working from the basic assumption that it's possible to fall in love with what we are given to do every day. And yet the experience of so many is quite the opposite. Your working career, if you work, I don't know, 55 hours a week, 45 years, is 123,000 hours. I don't know, you break the math down in other ways depending on what your job is and how long you do it for, but it's close to a half of your waking life for those years. And so you can see this is a significant question. And the failure of broader society to successfully manage to love what they do in recent decades particularly has prompted a great deal of reflection on what could be done about it. And one of the most common views, I think the most dominant view, certainly since about 1970, was picked up by Steve Jobs and expressed most famously in his Stanford University commencement address in 2005. And I've put it in a box on the top of the sheets that you have under the heading, The Wrong Way, which is a clue about where we're going here. I hope you've got a pen ready to cross this out. But here's what he said, and this received a rapturous reception, standing ovation. I mean, obviously, he could have, you know, read from the phone book at Stanford University and people would have given him a standard standing ovation. But anyway, he said this. I'm convinced, he said, referring to his, his early career and his career as it, as it developed, I'm convinced that the only thing that kept me going was that I loved what I did. You've got to find what you love. Your work is going to fill a large part of your life, and the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work, and the only way to do great work is to love what you do. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking and don't settle. As with all matters of the heart, you'll know when you find it, and like any great relationship, it just gets better and better as the years roll on. So keep looking, don't settle. <clears throat> you see the point he's making, the claim he's making. What he's claiming is 
strictly your pursuit of loving your work must follow this order. You must first figure out what it is that you love to do. Begins with self-analysis and self-reflection. And then having figured it out, you must then go and find a job that matches. Can you see? The order is very important. He's saying, you've got to find what you love. It's come to be known as the follow your passion hypothesis or the find your passion hypothesis. There's something there, the theory goes, that you love, and you've, but it's not obvious to you. You've got to find it, and then when you find it, you've got to find a job that allows you to do it, and then you'll be spending those 45% of your working, waking life during your working years doing what you love. And it seems unbelievably compelling, doesn't it? It's intuitively plausible. If you think, why might you think this? It seems just kind of obvious. Obviously, there are some things we like doing and some things we don't like doing. So why would you not want to just go and find what you love and then see if you can find a job doing it? And more than that, we probably all know people who are passionate about what they do. And so we might easily form the conclusion that what they did was to find what they're passionate about and then find a job doing it. Can you see what I mean? We see um, rain and wet sidewalks and we conclude, therefore, that wet sidewalks cause rain. Just as we see people working in a job they love and that coinciding with what their passion is, and we assume that they found their passion first and then they found a job that matched it. It's, but I'm going to argue that that's the way round that it actually is. Uh, just bear in mind that there's a lot riding on this. I mean, if Steve Jobs is right, there are two immediate consequences. I mean, the first is for most of us, it's too late. Like, if what you were supposed to have done was to find your passion and then find a job that matches, well, I'm really only talking to the under-15s, aren't I, or under-18s today, because the rest of us, you're stuck in a career, and the chance of you being able to retrain as a brain surgeon at the age of 48, if that's what you really thought your passion was, is pretty minimal, right? So if Steve Jobs is right, well, at least he was talking to the right audience. It's a shame that the rest of the world was listening in. Because the rest of the world might have good reason to feel pretty depressed if it's right. Because maybe you weren't supposed to be uh, a salesman. Maybe you were supposed to be a pastor. Maybe you weren't supposed to be a pastor. Maybe you were supposed to be a painter and decorator. Maybe you weren't supposed to be a painter and decorator. Maybe you were supposed to be um, a school teacher. And you missed it, sorry. So if if Steve Jobs is right, that's really depressing for about 75% of the people here. The remaining 25%, you younger men, you might think, great, this is wonderful. All I've got to do is find my passion and then... If Steve Jobs is right, if I find my passion, then I can pursue it. Best of luck finding your passion. My passion changed about once every six months during my teenage years. If I'd been following my passion consistently, I'd be a fighter pilot flying pastoral police officer (laughs) with a sideline in trauma surgery who worked occasionally in a school teaching physics and chemistry and math. I mean, I'd... I had so many different passions. And what will actually happen during your teenage years and during your adulthood is that what you enjoy will change. And that's actually a clue as to where we're going. 
But fortunately, as I say, it is not true. It is not true that the way to end up doing what you really, excuse me, what you really love is to figure out what you really love and then do it. That's not the way around it goes. It's actually the other way around. Uh, Just let me give you a few reasons why we might question the thesis from the outset. I mean, the first reason, there's four reasons why I think um, before we even get to the Bible, why we might think Steve Jobs is wrong. The first is that it just sounds too plausible. It's like the 50 Eskimo words for snow thesis, you know? It's like, <laughs> it's the sort of thing that would get passed on and be believed even if it wasn't true. Uh, 50 Eskimo words for snow quickly becomes 450 Eskimo words for snow, and everyone, and nobody stops to think that, well, there are about 50 words for snow in Inuit, just like there are about 50 words or phrases for snow in English. It's just that the way that English language works is it forms compounds by using separate words, whereas Inuit languages use suffixes on the same word. So we have powdery snow, dry snow, wet snow, freshly fallen snow, snow that floats on the water, snow that you can build snowmen out of, snow that you can't make into snowballs. And the way that Inuit works is mostly it just compounds those and makes single words out of them. It's a bit like German. Like the word for a tank in German is about 40 syllables long because it... It just compounds lots of words. This isn't a feature of some deep connection between culture and uh, worldview and language. It's just the way the language works. But uh, it strikes me that the passion hypothesis is like that. It seems so obvious that everybody would believe it without thinking about it, which is probably why most people do, which is also now why they're unhappy in work. Which takes us to the second reason um, people are unhappy in work. I mean, statistically, that's not really debatable. The origin of the passion hypothesis can probably be dated to about 1970. A man called Richard Bowles wrote a book called What Colour Is Your Parachute? <laughs> I kid you not, I don't know what that was about. But, it, but it, it outlined the passion hypothesis. And when you follow what happens as a result of people... It was a very influential book, and the f- Find Your Passion thing spread through contemporary culture very fast as a result. You, just, you look at what happened. In 1987, 61% of Americans were satisfied with their jobs. By 2010, that had declined to 45%. And among younger people, 64% were actively unhappy in their jobs. And that's really interesting because they're the ones who you think would have had time to follow the follow your passion hypothesis, and it's just not working. Third reason, um, even when people do manage to follow their passion, it doesn't reliably lead to satisfaction and fulfilment. And there's plenty of anecdotal evidence about this. I read a fascinating quotation from uh, one uh, young man who was interviewed for a book in, written in 2001. He said this, My professional situation now couldn't be more perfect. I chose to pursue my career... Sorry, I chose to p- pursue the career I knew in my heart I was passionate about. Politics. I love my office, my friends, even my boss. But something's still not right. Quote, it's not fulfilling. I'm having a hard time actually thinking of a career that sounds appealing. And he's got to the place that he identified as his passion. and He's not happy there. So that doesn't work. And then the fourth reason, even people who you might think have followed their passion actually didn't follow their passion. They did something else. So Steve Jobs, for example. You know what actually happened to Steve Jobs? He dropped out of college in his first year, having spent six months studying psychology, humanities, and philosophy. And then he spent 
good period of time sleeping on friends' floors, scrounging meals at the local Hare Krishna temple. He went on a pilgrimage to India. He came back to America, joined a sort of Zen commune. He only started making computers because he was basically running out of cash and living in his parents' garden shed and had no money. And his uh, early co-worker, Steve Wozniak, was interviewed a number of years later, said, yes, Steve Jobs never wrote code. He's not an engineer. He never designed anything. And he's amazingly intelligent, and so he had the capacity to, to tweak other people's designs and creatively to sort of engage with what other people are doing. And he learned code later. But in those early days, it's not like he identified... If he had followed his passion, he'd have been some wandering, barefoot, long-haired Zen guru. But instead, he founded one of the most successful companies that's ever existed. So Steve Jobs didn't follow his passion. So the follow-your-passion hypothesis can go in the trash can where it belongs. I want to suggest an alternative. And um, just to confirm this, if you want to get your pen and scribble out what's in that top box or tear it off the top of the sheet and do something with it, you're welcome. The alternative I want to suggest arises from the most obvious place uh, possible. If, if we're going to have a talk about work, you know that at some point I'm going to read from Genesis 1, 26 to 28. And I want to... I mean, you've all heard talks about work that focus on Genesis 1, 26 to 28. But what I want to do is to draw from that important text. Let me just read it. And then call attention to those strands of interconnected biblical teaching that flow from it that answer the question, what do I need to do if I want to love my work? I would, this would have been a successful morning for me if in the coming months... I get a steady trickle of texts, emails, even perhaps occasionally group chat messages on the men's group chat saying, you know what, Pastor Jeffrey, I'm really enjoying my work now and I wasn't before. My, I, I would love for you men to love what you do. And I think it's possible, even if you didn't follow your passion. And I want to show you what the Bible says about how this familiar text is going to be in the background of everything I say from this point on. Uh, it's on the sixth day of creation. God's finished making everything else, and at the climax of his uh, creative work, he says, verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And you know very well that, just to summarize briefly how this text relates to work, Christian theologians and writers and Christians down the ages have rightly seen this as a call to take that which has been made by God, and, quote, have dominion over it or rule over it, which is not to say dominate or domineer. It means to take that which is there, which is good, and make it better by mixing your work with it. So let's take a very early example. Uh, somebody in the early chapters of Genesis found a good and beautiful rock that had some sparkly bits of gold stuff in it. And so he took that good and beautiful rock and he heated it up very hot until the sparkly gold stuff turned to liquid and ran out to the bottom of the pan in which it was 
being heated. And then he scraped off the dross from the top and he was left with this little nugget of gold. And then he hammered and bent and wrought that into a ring which he gave to his wife as a gift. What he was doing was ruling over the creation. He was taking that which was there and good and mixing it with his labor so as to make it even better. And the shape of history is forged, no pun intended, by people made in the image of God, doing God's work in the world by taking that which God has made and making it better and better. The shape, we were talking about this on Wednesday night, Bible study. The shape of history is good, and then it goes bad, and then it goes progressively better and better and better and better in the discipleship of the nations for Christ. And one aspect of that is the work that God gives men to do. And I know all of your work, or with one exception, I can think of one guy who makes rings for people. Um, but the, the work that God has given you to do is some hyper-specialized subset or subcategory of taking what God has made and making it better. It might be analyzing economic data in order to help people to plan their business ventures so that they can take what God has made and made it better. It might be managing a bunch of people to ship the stuff that's been hacked out of the ground and now forged into steel bars and girders around the country so that it can be used to make houses and bridges. It might be taking those beautiful things that have been made out of that, those steel girders, among other things, and applying coatings to them so they look more beautiful and they're nicer to live in. You see what we're doing, but painters and decorators and steel wholesalers and economists and everybody is taking that which God has made and making it more glorious and better. And so all of your work is a fulfillment of this. You with me? Now that's the familiar bit. Now, I, what I want to suggest is the fundamental insight we need to grasp is God has given this to you as a gift and it's good. Are we to take the world that God has given us and not love it? No. We have to love our work then. And the challenge of learning to love your work is the challenge of learning to do it in a way that brings us to love it. It must be possible. It might be more difficult because of the fall, we'll see in a minute or two, but it must be possible. And I want to summarize the three uh, headings that I want to speak briefly about in that second box. Work as for the Lord, first. At demanding but achievable tasks, second. With 100% of your focus and effort, third. And it's my contention that that's the way in which the creation mandates teaching about work intersects with our pursuit of joy and satisfaction and love for our labours. You with me? So I'm just going to interrogate each of those three claims one at a time, and dig a little bit deeper into them. Let me pause. Any, any questions so far? I have a horrible feeling that this is going to last a bit longer than half an hour, but I hope you'll forgive me. Is there forgiveness even for pastors? I've got ten minutes left. Oh, I'll just talk faster then. Thank you for your grace. I appreciate that. Um, okay, work as for the Lord. Do you understand that your work should be framed within a context that sees it as a contribution to what God is doing in the world. We might not be able to see the connection, 
how is my data entry, my applying paint to this baseboard, my replacing these busted shingles on the roof, how is this contributing to God's work in the world? Well, it's a very small contribution because you're very small. Get used to it. But we live by faith, do we not? Faith is the uh, certainty of things hoped for, the knowledge of things not seen. You can't see the connection between what you're doing and God's purposes in the world. But it doesn't matter what you can see. God says the connection is there. You can't see the forgiveness of sins, but I'm trusting you're all going to forgive me if I run like 30 seconds over the half hour. Right? (laughs) We believe all kinds of things that we can't see. And the first step is to reframe our work so that we're self-consciously thinking of it in these terms. I did talk last year about the limitations of uh, this reframing exercise. When we were talking about... um, rituals and habits and disciplines as a way of forging character, one of the insights we began with was the recognition that you don't normally fix people just by telling them something. Remember we talked about that stuff like a year ago, those of you who are here. And if we want to change our character and understanding of the world, we actually need to to instantiate new habits and live in the world differently and develop new practices. But it's not true that just understanding something is of no value. To reframe all of the struggles of your work in a context where you're saying, yeah, this is me making my tiny spirit-empowered contribution to what God is doing in the whole of human history is, I want to submit to you, an important and possible enterprise. This intersects with a couple of other themes in Scripture. Let me just uh, call your attention to them. Uh, some other specific biblical texts. If you've got your Bibles, you'll find it helpful to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Because this is, this is a kind of stress test for this claim I'm making. I'm suggesting that we should work as for the Lord. So when you're going into work and your boss has clearly had a bad weekend again, (laughs) judging by the sneer he gave you and the the pile of emails he's just forwarded to you with, you know when they do that thing and they just forward you an email and say, thoughts? Question mark? They're like, you basically just gave me that job to do, right? You didn't even bother to ask me a specific question about it. It's like, you can't be bothered. Well, have a spare thought for these, your brothers in Christ. Colossians 3.22 Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. That's a great translation. But with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. You notice it's not, you're not trying to please your boss here. If you try and please the Lord, if you're fearing the Lord, your boss will be pleased to the extent that he's a righteous man. Knowing that, sorry, verse 22, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. And these are slaves. There were some uh, slaves who were reasonably well-treated in the ancient world, but there was no guarantee of it, which is why Paul had to write to masters and urge them not to be harsh with their slaves. So, you know, you might have a bad boss. Yeah, so join the middle of the line somewhere, because there are plenty of people ahead of you. 
plenty of people ahead of me, in more broadly the experience of work being painful. Now this is uh, where we need to go back to uh, Genesis again, because you notice that Genesis 1 isn't the last word in, in the early chapters of the Bible on the subject of work. Following Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, the Lord pronounces a series of curses, first on the serpent, then the woman, and then finally on the man. And it's that curse which is most relevant to us here today, Genesis 3.17, where the Lord says to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Here's what's going to happen. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So you see there that this curse that's pronounced on Adam has relation specifically to the field of his work, pun intended. He's a farmer. And whereas the woman is cursed in her particular calling as a child bearer, in pain you shall bring forth children, Adam's work now is going to be painful. This is both the, uh, the signal that something is wrong in the world and the punishment for his participation in it. So, now that causes some people to say, well, we should just relinquish all hope of work ever being fruitful. And I think that's a mistake, that's an overstatement. Um, the plan of God, set out in Genesis 1, still stands. It's just that Genesis 3 stands in the way. And so the question is, okay, you're going to find work frustrating. Um, How precisely does Scripture teach that this frustration can be even partially overcome? And the answer is, as before, as for the Lord. So it is Christ whose work has overcome this curse. And this is depicted very graphically in a number of different ways in Scripture. You you see the the scriptural imagery of thorns, for example. The the thorns that grew from the ground to pierce Adam's feet pierced the head of the Messiah. The sweat of your face. I love this uh, insight from my old professor, Thomas Renz. He said the word sweat appears in the whole Bible only three times. In, in Genesis 3, sweat is the, the manifestation of the curse and pain of work. I mean, you're, if you're like a rancher and you're out in the field and you're sweating, it's because it's hard, right? If it's easy, it, you wouldn't be sweating. But sweat means this is hard work, man, this is exhausting. The only other two times sweat appears. First time is in Ezekiel 44. Uh, where you're not allowed to wear anything in the renewed temple that causes sweat, or obviously, because sweat is a sign of curse work. You don't want to bring curse work into the temple. And the third time, of course, is when Jesus' sweat was like drops of blood falling on the ground. So you're not allowed to sweat in the temple. You don't need to sweat in the temple. There's one who's sweated blood for you. And so pulled the splinter out, so to speak. Jesus has opened a way for us to experience all of the blessings that his life and death and resurrection have won for us. He's won for us every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 3. And we customarily focus on those uh, blessings that have to do with our status, 
um, the forgiveness of sins, righteousness in him, new life in Christ, the adoption of sons, a status of holiness so we can enter the presence of God. But it's also true that Christ has placed us in a position where we're able to view life from a different perspective now and experience life in a different way now. So, for example, somebody might experience a beating at the hands of uh, violent and unjust prison guards as just a beating and just pain. But somebody else, one of our forefathers in the faith who was martyred for the sake of Christ, will perceive the same experience as participating in the sufferings of Christ. And we have, we have accounts from the early centuries of the church of martyrs weeping with joy at the privilege of experiencing pain for Jesus because the character of the pain is transformed. So is it painful? Yes. Is it a joy? Yes. And you see this is paradox in the Christian experience of life because we're in Christ. Being in Christ means we're Our status is changed, forgiven, adopted, righteous, holy. And our experience of life is transformed. So now, it will be just as painful for you to get repetitive strain injury in your wrists because you've got um, 137 emails to do before 9 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, and your boss won't write by you, drag and dictate, or whatever it is that you'd need to be able to do it, you know, automatically into your computer. But the experience of that frustration, the long hours, the tiredness, the, the mental strain of differential equations and the, the personal relational frustration of working with a boss who doesn't understand or working for, working for a company that's going in the wrong direction, all these things, that experience can be different in just the same way that a beating can be different if it's a Christian as opposed to a non-Christian being beaten for Jesus. If our forefathers in the faith could be martyred joyfully, can we not work joyfully even when it's (laughs) like a real pain in the neck? So I want to submit to you that it's possible to enjoy our work. If we have a self-conscious awareness of the fact that even the frustrations are a God-given gift whose character has been transformed in Christ. The the one text I, I love in relation to work, actually speaks to this. I'll just um, turn to it briefly. It's in Ecclesiastes 9. And you probably hear this one coming down the track, even as I was speaking. And you know, Ecclesiastes is full of all these really kind of blunt and, uh, what's the word, gritty confessions of the frustration and vanity of life, and and of work in particular. And then it's punctuated with these almost laughable instructions to go and enjoy yourself. And Ecclesiastes 9, 7, Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has always already approved what you do. There's stuff about garments and oil and enjoy life with your wife, which we won't go into because otherwise you'll get all kinds of questions about that instead of what we're talking about. And then verse, verse 10, Whatever your hand finds to do, literally work at Work at it with your might. For the, Actually, there's the word, word work appears three times. I'll, I'll translate it kind of literally. Whatever your hand finds to work, work at it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shale to which you are going. Work, work, work. And work at it with your might. It's a very odd word 
in the Hebrew text. It's the, it's the word me'od. I can't pronounce it. Pastor Neil, you can probably pronounce it. It it's, appears 300 times in the Old Testament. Um, it means very or exceedingly. It's in Genesis 1. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. It's in Genesis 7. The waters were rising very much on the earth. And so it's an adverb and sometimes it's an adjective. It's only a noun in two places. Here, work at it with your ma'od, and one other place. And that other place is in Deuteronomy 6. And it seems that the, uh, the author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, has deliberately chosen an expression to call your mind back to, to Deuteronomy 6 in his description of the work you should do. When he says... Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your ma'od. And it's translated might or strength. All your muchness, some translators put it kind of in a wooden way, which is is a lovely way of putting it. But you see what's happening is this distinctive way of using this odd word in Ecclesiastes shows you how to love the Lord. Or maybe it hints that if you do your work as an expression of love for the Lord, that's how you ought to do it in Ecclesiastes 9. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of whatever it is that is the way you love the Lord. Work as for the Lord. Do you love Jesus? Now, I, want, I want to see you, not see you, I don't want to see you on first thing in the morning on Monday. Uh, but first thing in the morning on Monday, I want to know that your, your alarm goes and it's like, yes, I get to go to serve Jesus. Woohoo! Right? Because how much are you supposed to love the Lord? Like, with all of your everythingness. Yeah, so that reframing, I want to suggest, is a big part of the, the picture we should have in mind. Now, I'm going to try and speed up and catch up some of the time I've lost by covering the next two um, uh, a little bit more swiftly. Uh, the second, work as for the Lord at demanding but achievable tasks. It need hardly be said that in Genesis 1, the task Adam and Eve had been given was demanding, challenging. Just go and fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, we'll see you later. Uh, or rather, I'll see you all the way through. I'll be with you. Um, one writer, I forget, was it Bill, oh, I forget, wrote a book connecting the cultural mandate to the Great Commission. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That's interesting. I'll be with you. Um, And so this actually speaks in practical ways to some of the job choices things. So some of you really are here thinking, well, I do have a certain amount of choice in what I do next. And and some of you mid-career, and some of you haven't started on the life of work yet. Well, let me suggest to you that what you really want to do is to find something that's hard, but not impossible. You see, if it's easy, you're not really going to be buying into the project. You know, God said to Adam, fill and subdue the earth. Yeah, well, I'm just going to focus on this little daffodil. It's like, I, th- I think you could probably do a bit more than that. No, no, I really want to just focus on this little daffodil. Yeah, I think you could probably do a patch of daffodils in the first 20 minutes, and then we'll move on and we'll have a bit more labor from you. No, no, I really want to focus. Yeah, you're, not, you're not working hard enough. We won't be actually buying into God's project unless we push ourselves. And actually, you've, you know this, some of you young men know it, particularly in the physical realm. There's, some, there's a real sense of 
that was good when you're absolutely exhausted, isn't it? When you really put your back into something and you're like, you know what, that was, that was great. I, th- I think, actually, there's a challenge for us all to apply that in other areas. So it's not just physical. Most of the guys here are not in purely physical labour. There's a mental aspect. And for us to push ourselves mentally and physically is to put ourselves into the project. And looking at a guy who's got promotion recently, and it's like, man, that was... You're now doing two jobs. <laughs> well... Yeah, so demanding, right? And you're buying into the project that God has given us to do in Christ. Of course, achievable. So, you know, you're 48 years old. Don't quit being a pastor to be a brain surgeon. I mean, it's just, that's not really rational, not really. And however much the idea of talent is overrated by comparison with hard work and consistent practice, and it is, we, we tend to attribute too much to talent and not enough to just hard work. And Mozart is a very good example. The reason he's so good at music was because he was forced to practice for 10 hours a day for the first 15 years of his life by his father and do anything 15 hours a day for 10 hours a day for 15 years you end up pretty good at it tiger woods the same though his father was a bit nicer than mozart's um, but however much we you know we've got this balance between natural ability and and the fruit of hard work there are some things you're great at and some things you're not so great at so it wouldn't be a bad idea to pick something that you're you're reasonably good at but then of course you don't want to just gravitate well this is the thing i find easy no Find the thing you have an aptitude to grow in. Can you see the difference? It's not, I'm already a great engineer. But now if I worked really hard, I could probably become a pretty good engineer. Can you see the difference? And it keys into the, uh, the aspect of the creation mandate that we often forget where the, the gift is the process not just the outcome. And so the joy and excitement and love for the work can come from the process and not just the outcome. I mean, I'm looking, so John, when you make those beautiful rings, which I guess is almost like a hobby for you, right? They're beautiful to look at at the end, but there's something about the process, isn't there, of being a craftsman, when you really get in the zone and you're, you're really working well at it. And of course, when it works out well, that's, that's great. And when it doesn't work out well, you're like, oh, melt this down and start again. <laughs> Sweep up all the bits of gold dust from the workbench. Um, but the process is important. Because God said to Adam and Eve, do something which you could never accomplish. Do something which you could never finish. The implication being that it's teleological in the sense that it's, it's about the goal you're striving towards and it's about the process of getting there it's not just you'll find joy when you finished no yeah and you know this some of you know this because when you got your first job or when you started a new company or you got a promotion you're like this is really exciting and the excitement fades doesn't it and that's that's natural that's natural because you're you're built to want to move on to the next thing and so we need the constant challenges of going on to the next thing. You've subdued this mountain, Adam. Well done. How about that forest? And so I want to encourage you to tackle something challenging, to push yourselves, to expect more from yourselves. And some of you are extremely highly accomplished in the specialist areas that you work in. Let me tell you, there is always, always room at the top. 
we, I discovered this in chess recently. Magnus Carlsen, greatest chess player ever lived, probably. Certainly the greatest chess player currently playing. Um, I mean, everyone has known for years that he couldn't beat the kind of standard chess computers. Um, but then somebody invented a new chess computer, an artificial intelligence power chess computer, which wiped the floor with all the other chess computers. And it, what was interesting is it just did it in a completely different way. It plays completely wild chess. It breaks all the rules. And you're watching this. Alpha Zero is the name of this computer. You're watching the, the kind of replays of the games it's played. You're like, what? you're not supposed to do that. I taught my son not to do that. Moving the rook out on the fourth move up the, the, the first rank, that's, you're not supposed to do that. And, and it, it absolutely flattened everything. And you realise, wow, we thought we'd reached the pinnacle. We were nowhere near. Whatever it is you're doing, you might be the best fighter pilot in the US Air Force. You could be better, could you not? I'll leave you to think about that one. But, but, and it's the same for everything, you know, preaching sermons. Every, uh, you don't need me to keep banging on about that. And so we will find joy from that experience of making progress, which you will only get thirdly and briefly with 100% of your focus and effort. The great enemy, which is even being increasingly recognised in secular literature on work these days. The great enemy of progress and productivity and, and personal satisfaction in work is distraction. The, some data have been produced suggests that the average knowledge worker dis, gets distracted roughly every two minutes during the day or every two and a half minutes or something. And about half the time we distract ourselves because we've got a little distraction box in front of us. Whatever it is you're working on, you could just click another icon and work on something else or not work on something else because... Browser tabs or check your email or bing, instant messaging. And so there's all this kind of secular uh, workspace literature out there building up about how to focus in work. It's, it's all theological without realizing it. The reason is this you're finite. We're finite. You can't actually do two demanding things at once. And you can't do demanding things at all without working hard at them. And so. For Adam to fill in, I mean, imagine the first time, he's, first time he's trying to chop down a tree. Like There was a first time when Adam, he's standing next to an oak tree, and he's like, hmm, hmm. He pushes it a little bit, and he's like, <laughs> yeah, I need to make a house. I, th- I have a hunch I could make it out of this. Um, hold on, I'm just going to check my email. <laughs> He'd never have got it done. When Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't thinking about other things. All the great things that our Lord does, he's focused intently on. And he only does great things. And just at a very practical level, you will find your work immensely frustrating if it's broken into two-minute chunks. But if you get lost in it, you get absorbed in it, you give 100% attention to it, whatever it is, I, I've, I've got to tell you, I've even gained satisfaction from my Monday afternoon admin sessions. I, I don't look forward to Monday afternoons in terms of the content of the work. It's where I try and catch up on all the emails, get to inbox zero, send all the emails out to the church and stuff. And sometimes you get those church emails on Tuesday, I had a bad Monday. But I've even got satisfaction from the Monday morning, Monday afternoons. I love Monday mornings because I'm teaching Bible and theology. 
And the reason is because you just get lost in it. It's like smoke coming from the keyboard. That's the way to do admin, yeah? Carve through it like a hot knife through butter. And sometimes you get to the end and it's like you're dizzy. And it's somehow satisfying. Same with physical work, isn't it? Like chopping wood, like there, chop, wander off, look at the trees, come back, chop. Your mum will get frustrated with you and you'll be frustrated with yourself. But if you pour yourself into it, it's so satisfying. There's a wonderful story I've told you before about Rick Furrer, who's a um, blacksmith. He makes these beautiful uh, swords and meat cleavers and wrought iron artifacts and they're like thousands of dollars each and each one takes tens of thousands of hammer strokes and if you have a single hammer stroke that goes wrong you'll probably crack the steel and you'll just have to basically melt it down and start again it takes days to make a meat cleaver every single hammer stroke he has to concentrate on and all he's doing is think 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 he's banging on a piece of metal I mean you think just reduce it to that and it's the most tedious job in the world He's just going, dink, 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 dink. And he loves his work because he's completely absorbed in it. And I don't know whether he's a believer, but he's either through reflection on the scriptures or just by God's kind providence, he's arrived at the point that we should be trying to arrive at, a Christian version of 100% wholehearted devotion to what we're doing. And you'll actually find joy in it. And I want to hear it from you. In the coming weeks, I'll be praying for you that you you come to bounce out of bed at, when there are too many fours and fives on the alarm clock still in the morning with joy and zeal and excitement about what the Lord has in store for you. All right, I'm going to pause. We've got 10 minutes. That wasn't bad, was it? Squeezed it into a bit more than half an hour. Um, Questions, comments. I, I regret that I, this last week has been a little hectic, so I haven't had time to talk with my fellow pastors about um, any of this in advance, really. So, Jeff and Jeff, if you have any thoughts particularly to throw in, um, I'd love to hear them. Um, you are scribbling, Pastor Neil. I don't know whether you have anything you want to throw in, but it'd be wonderful to hear it. fundamental insight of one work was given before the fall mm-hmm. number two work reflects the image of God because God worked for six days and rested on one that's the starting point that I have ever gone with I think it's complementary mm. work was given before the fall mm. work is a demonstration of the image of God yeah amen yeah Jeff you got anything you want to throw in we got some questions where we worship leisure. Yeah. The absence of work. Mm. We work to get to something. You know, it's not work. Yeah, yeah, made it. Mm. Um, conversely, I think the other pitfall is to fall into worshiping work. Yes, yes. And we're to worship the Lord who gives. Yeah. Well, that's one of the tremendously valuable things about what Jeff Neal said, isn't it? That we're given six days to work. Like... So it doesn't follow that from that that seven days of work would be good. <laughs> you know, teaspoon of salt is great. Two teaspoons, not so great. Um, so working 
with a goal to rest and worship, but not like leisure being yeah, the idol either. Yeah, Mr. Herrera, you had a hand up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I don't think I'm disagreeing. I, I, it sounds like I may not have been as clear as would have been helpful because I think Rick Furrer loves what he does, and it's not because there's something intrinsic about hammering metal that he does but it's it's exactly it's the attitude he brings to it i guess what i'd want to say is it yeah it's where to to boil the whole thing down again to its most simple it's not that we should find what we love and then do it we should do it in a certain way and then we'll come to love it and i want to submit to you that that when when you look back at your career as a police officer you were for lapd right i mean that's is it lapd much better department, right? You, 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 the, w- when you loved it, and as you look back on it as a, as a lifetime's achievement, it's because of the way you went about it. Yeah? And there would have been times when it wasn't perfect, and your, your attitude might not have been perfect, but when your attitude was good, and your approach was good in these kinds of ways, you're working hard, you're, you're giving yourself 100% to it, that's what creates the love. The love flows as a consequence of that. Is that making sense? Well, I was, I was very fortunate that early in my career I learned hmm. that I have to do this to give glory to God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. Me. Yes. So, and, th- and that's, pardon my interjecting, that's exactly what I'm getting at. I mean, to... to Look, that's a, I loved it first, and I asked the Lord to guide me. Yeah, okay. That's, yeah, good. And... and, and and that was the joy hmm. was knowing that I was in, a, in an island that, where it's not common to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you. All right, a couple here, Nate and then um, Taylor. Nate. Oh. I'm going to assume that a lot of the guys in this room have gone through career transitions. Yeah. Um, how would you relate what you're talking about here to that, going from one type of work to a significantly different type of work? Yeah. Yeah. Say from being an army ranger to being a statistician. Yeah, say, just for example. Well, I mean, I think I'd say that there are some fields that have more thorns and thistles in them. And there are some farms that close down. So if Adam's great-great-great-grandson finds himself in a field with loads of thorns and thistles, and there's one next door where there are fewer, in other words, where you've got a nicer working environment, better pay, and not such a bad boss, say, make the switch. And it might be a different vocation altogether. It's great. I think the mistake would be to think that just changing jobs will make you happy. Because you can make any job miserable. And there's, there's a, I mean, the guy I, who I quoted earlier who found his dream job in politics in D.C., he's working in Washington, D.C., managed to not enjoy it. And I, I think he's very candid in saying, I, I can't think of anything I'd like to do. I think he's on a voyage of self-discovery because he's... Well, the thing he's not yet realised is that you could enjoy anything that you really gave yourself to. So I would be... I'm not against those, the career transitions at all. I think it's, I've had a couple myself. Um, and I, th- I think the issue is 
sometimes you're driven by economic necessity or geographic necessity or your family needs change, and great. There's all kinds of things that do that. But whichever job you're in, in a, in a sense, the, the principles remain the same, I'd want to suggest, insofar as everything is contributing somehow to this project that God's involved in. Are you with me? Yep. Yeah. Uh, Josh? How would you say, um, especially for those who are, who are self-employed, uh, finding the balance between working really hard and then that can, especially being self-employed, it can come to 60 hours sometimes. Yeah. How do you balance working hard and that, that being a model for like your family, your children, like, hey, your father works hard, and also working too much to where you kind of become absent Mm. You could easily find yourself working into the evenings and having many hours yeah, yeah. of hang out with your family. Yeah. Balance that maybe mentally or like you know, carving out certain time. Yes. Um, let me say something briefly then, Tony. I wonder if you would you mind because I know this is something you've had to wrestle with with a growing family and growing work demands at the same time. I think there's there's something to be said for structure and discipline. Both ways. So work when you work. Sometimes you might have to do some overtime hours and that's the way it goes. That's not unique to anybody. And at the same time, to learn to, learn to apply this same single-mindedness to the time you have with your wife. When you might be completely exhausted. That, I think that's a challenge that all of us wrestle with in different ways. There's a lot more I could say about that, but I'd like to hear another voice. Mr. Douglas, you've, you've got a large number of children and fairly significant responsibilities professionally. Can I speak to that question? Yeah, it's... Uh, unfortunately, it's not, it's not prescriptive, right, for, for each one of us, but what's always helped me is, uh, at least specifically in my case, the remarkable amount of time and so, uh, you know, becoming uh, a, a, a Jedi master, if you will, of uh, not wasting any time. We all, we all get the same 24 hours a day. And it's, it's remarkable how little some people can get accomplished in those 24 hours and how right. much other people can get accomplished in that same 24 hours. And, and it's a matter of being cognizant of, of, of wasting time. I have been. Hmm. Uh, you know, obviously, you can all name the hundreds of things you can do this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can chase those out. Hmm. Um, and, I, and I've wasted as much time as anybody alive, probably. But over, over time, I've learned you know, those pursuits and, and those things are absolutely pointless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm conscious what, what we've done here is exactly what Mr. Capone said we've done in the last year of men's discipleship breakfast, which is we just cracked open a can of worms and we have got much more to explore. And can I ask just two more minutes? That will mean we run two minutes past the time when I said we'd finish. Would you mind, though, taking two minutes just to prayerfully and thoughtfully write down either in an email you send to me or on a piece of paper, 
that's in front of you, which you give to me, any questions or comments or thoughts, anything, while they're fresh in your mind, seriously, if I got two or three sentences or one or two questions from everybody here, that would mean that we can then shape the forthcoming men's discipleship events so that we're really focusing on the nitty-gritty of where you guys are in your vocations. Is, would that be, is that okay? Can I, can I give you two minutes for that? And then I'll let you all go. Thank you. So just so you know where we're going to go from here. Um, this is actually going to go out on the podcast um, next week, Lord willing, uh, pending the usual miraculous intervention of our tech team over here. I would really appreciate it if you could give me or photograph and send me or email to me, whatever, whatever it is you've just written or are writing. Um, I have in mind a number of other men's discipleship events picking up various related themes. My aim, as I said, is for you guys to rejoice in your daily labours. I think this may have all kinds of very significant implications in other areas of your life and family life and worship and relationships with people around you. If we had a a church full of men who loved what they do, surrounded by non-Christians at work, can you imagine that for a second? Or a church full of women whose husbands loved their labours in the Lord. Can you imagine what that would do to them and their children? So one of my prayers for this year is that we can all grow in this area of loving our work and we're only going to do so if we get nitty gritty as well as this kind of theological stuff so please ping me that stuff Pastor Shaw, Pastor Neil, anything else you want to just close us with? No. Daniel Robinson um, practical things that we could help with before we pray so great guys I appreciate your time and my sincere apologies we've gone five over um, but if you're able to stay and help that's great if you need to get off then we'll honour your time and those of us who can stay will clear up let me pray with thankfulness to you and to the Lord. Merciful Father, we're grateful to you for one another. Thank you for these men and for their families, uh, for the past that you've given them all and for the future that lies ahead of all of us. Knit us together as a body, we pray, that we may sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. Thank you for all the blessings of this day and we ask that as we go out into what remains of it and what remains of the rest of our lives, you would teach us to do so with joy, with diligence, and with gratitude to and focus upon you as the source of all good things. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. God bless you. Have a great day.